0: I'm Marty Moskow, and welcome to The Connection. For most of us, failure feels shameful. We feel like we're a bad person. We're not good enough. We've let a lot of people down, and we'll do almost anything to avoid that feeling. Our guest, Amy Edmondson, says that intelligent failure, underline intelligent, can be a great teacher. It can be a source of discovery and personal growth. And fear of failure can lead to avoidance, cutting us off from the risks and rewards of experimentation, of trying new things. Edmondson is professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School and has done pioneering research on something called psychological safety in the workplace. That means creating an environment where people feel free to ask for help, disagree with their boss, and yes, admit failures and mistakes without fear of punishment. Amy Edmondson's new book is titled Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, where she writes that we would all benefit from experiencing more failures, not fewer. She joins us today on The Connection to talk about the upsides of failure. And Amy Edmondson, nice to have you with us today on The Connection.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, let's start with shame. And <laughs> I have to say, even <laughs> when I thought about failure and my own failures, the emotion that came right to the fore was shame. Why
1: is that? Well, back at you. Um, that is certainly <laughs> the one that comes to the fore for me and probably for most of us. And, and I think it's, it's born of an unrealistic idea that we're supposed to be perfect, right, that we're supposed to get things right the first time, you know, even in new territory, even doing things that we haven't done before, we have truly unrealistic expectations for ourselves. And so because we don't reach those expectations, we feel that shame. We feel that we've let ourselves and maybe others down. But it is not scientifically valid. (laughs) And we will
0: get to all of that. But just sort of focusing a little bit more here, I think there's this also this feeling, as I mentioned in my introduction of letting people down, of Mm -hmm. fear of being sort of shunned by our tribe.
1: Honestly, I think that's what it all boils down to, right? That's sort of the root cause of that that fear is a, a very deep, worry that we'll be kicked out of the tribe, we'll, will we'll die a lonely death on our own. And, and of course, it's, uh, ironically, it's just not true. In fact, we like people better when we realize that they're fallible and that they're honest about their fallibility. We feel more of a bond with them rather than, than, than less. Um, so we have to learn to challenge those fears and call them out for the irrational fears that they truly are.
0: It feels, too, as if failure is even more stigmatized today, and I don't know whether that's because of social media, but it feels like we're in a very judgy culture uh, where every mistake, every failure gets called out, you know, explanations are seen as excuses, Mm. Uh, you know, nothing, you can do nothing wrong. How do you see that?
1: Well, I do believe social media is playing a large and largely destructive role in this area. Uh, because our many of the failures that in the past would have been just private, that would have been me and my team or my family, um, now can end up being widely seen and and instantaneously seen by all. So that has the chilling effect of reducing our increasing the consequences and reducing our ability to look with a clear eye and an open heart at what happens so that we can learn from it.
0: I mean, that's the tribe, right, ganging up on us.
1: Right, right. And, you know, part of that instinct to gang up comes from that deep insecurity that people feel that, you know, if, if I see you having a failure, I can feel better about myself because you failed and I'm, I'm fine over here. And that's not our best selves, truly.
0: Well, I wonder, too, and sort of even adding to some of the pressure, there seems to be this expectation or drive for perfection um you know nothing less than an a or an A plus you're at Harvard you probably experience this a fair amount uh is acceptable
1: and ironically, I mean, I think it's well known that there's been grade inflation at Harvard and elsewhere, so that the modal grade is an a minus um, wow. you know which means that most students are getting an a or an a minus, which then of course means it's really not that special and um Certainly back when, when I went to college, NA, you know, NA was hard won and you didn't always get them, but you felt pretty good about yourself and and your hard work when you did get them. So ironically, we've, we've kind of taken away that source of satisfaction and joy um, by making it sort of too easy uh, to get. Um, and and I, And I think you're right in general, this obsession with perfection, this obsession with awards and, and, and getting it right. The, that's, you know, on, on one hand, that sounds good. People sure. are striving, people sure. are doing good things, but on the other hand, it actually leads to a risk aversion, which we can talk more about, but it, it actually leads people to not be willing to take the risks that they need to take to have true accomplishment, you know, tr- true achievement. And it leads people to do what I I call play not to lose, you know, rather than play to win because playing to win means i'm going to go for it i'm going to try my hardest i'm going to accept the possibility that i might not succeed but i'm going all in i'm w- i'm willing to take those risks both intellectual or interpersonal or 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 other risks in 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 my life so as to have that wonderful experience of doing more than i thought i could and being willing to accept the possibility of of not you know not not winning uh, the game but if you only enter contests you know you're going to win they're going to be easy contests they're going to be they're going to be not really ultimately all that meaningful to you and perfectionism is I, I think you're right that it's on the rise and it's well understood by by psychologists and the people who study it to be Psychologically problematic. It's it's it creates anxiety. It, it's a source of pain, not a source of joy. Um, the perfectionism.
0: Well, we are uh, fallible people, you know. Some more fallible than others. Let me ask you something else that you write about. Why failing well is so hard. You said in 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 part there's there's an aversion, which I think we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, there is confusion and there's also mm-hmm. fear. What
1: is the confusion about? Well, the confusion is about, you know, if, if you say things like, it's okay to fail, people intuitively say, well, wait a minute. No, it isn't, right? Everything in society is telling me succeed, don't fail. So we we experience that confusion because at some level we know that isn't quite right. And we're right. It isn't right. It's it's incomplete. So the antidote to the confusion is clarity about the different kinds of failure. And yes, there are failures we should work hard to prevent. Sure. And, and those, I call them basic failures and complex failures. And we should do our very best. Um, and by the way, they tend to take place in familiar territory where we have a recipe or a process for how to get the result that we really want. And we are right to strive and to want to do well the things that we can do well because there's existing knowledge about it. But there's a third category, which I call intelligent failures, as you already described. And those are the source of, yes, personal discovery, scientific advances, you know, great athletic achievements. Those cannot happen without a willingness to take risks right to try things that might end in failure rather than success intelligent failures are those that are in new territory whether for you or for the world where you're you have good reason to believe that what you're trying could work out but you also understand that it might not and when it doesn't it's an intelligent failure and we have to learn to relish those because they are where progress comes from
0: And you're not saying, you know, you want your brain surgeon or your heart surgeon, you know, to uh, to involve themselves in some kind of uh, failure or airline pilots for that matter. No. That's in a totally different category. Their failures,
1: their failures should take place in simulators. Right. right? Whether you're, you know, an airline pilot or or a surgeon, your organization has available for you um, the a simulation of the real experience where you can take those risks, where you can test your skills, where you can try something new that you haven't tried before and see what happens. And when you crash the plane in the simulator, no one gets hurt.
0: You see, an interesting thing, speaking of of, of simulators and airplanes, is that the airline (laughs) industry has an incredible uh, safety record, as we know, and we are... Uh, supremely grateful for it. But obviously, the, the threat of failure hangs over each and every flight. How have they been able to create such a successful rate of non-failure?
1: Well, you know, part of the answer is that they're, they've taught themselves how to appreciate that the threat of failure is there. Right. But rather than ignoring it or saying, hey, this is very routine. We do this 100 times a day. You know, no big deal. They're saying, you know what? This is a big deal." what we do is inherently risky, right? There there are things that could go wrong. Now, they rarely do, but right. when they do, we better be on our toes. So they train themselves to be fully aware of the potential for failure and thereby to stay a step ahead of it and prevent it.
0: Is that just sort of thinking, not just, but thinking, mm. you know, every... Every flight is complicated, and there are a set of things that need to go right in order for them not mm-hmm. to go wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: That's exactly right. And every surgery is that way as well. And um, I, I met a, an airline captain who said he briefed every new cockpit crew, every new team, by saying, I've never flown a perfect flight. huh and wow. they'd sort of look at him and they'd feel like, wait, wh- where's he going with this? What's he, what's he saying? And he'd say, no, I'm serious. I've never flown a perfect flight. It won't happen today either. I need to hear from you. Right. So what he's doing is reframing the activity that they're about to engage in together from one that's utterly routine and he's the boss and you better listen to one that incre- that includes the very real possibility of things going wrong and you need to speak up. Well, and that requires a certain kind of vigilance. yes. It it does. It vigilance um, emotionally, vigilance interpersonally, and, and cognitively.
0: I'm thinking, too, on those times when there is an airline crash and, and people are either injured or killed. There's, there's always these really intensive investigations. Is that part of this whole process? Yes.
1: You know? Yes. So, I mean, part of what has made airline travel so very safe today is the, the hard work they have done in the past and today, to learn from, fortunately, we don't have very many, no. you know, almost none uh, fatal accidents, but we do have um, near misses. And and they take the time to learn in a very deep and careful way from all of them. Right? So those are the, you know, those are the data that um, allow future successes. Learning, Learning from the things that go wrong allow us to keep operating safely going forward.
0: Well, let's take a very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. Amy Edmondson is our guest today on The Connection. She's got a brand new book. It's called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. And she is a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School. We're talking about how to think differently about failure. In fact, she asks us and welcomes us to think about intelligent failures. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break, including a study she she did early on in her career that was a kind of failure stay with us we'll be right back
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth,
0: long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more.
1: Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We're talking about failure. Yes, it can feel shameful. Uh, we do almost anything to avoid it and not be found out about it. And our guest, Amy Edmondson, specializes in leadership and management at Harvard Business School and says there's a better way to think about failure. That's what we're talking about. It's the subject of her new book, Right, Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Amy, you write about being a Ph.D. student and you had a, a, a an important study you were doing um, that kind of blew up in your face. Can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. Um, I was fortunate to be a part of a larger research project that was taking place out of Harvard Medical School on medication errors. And the larger project's aim was to sort of once and for all, and this was 30 years ago, uh, come up with a, an accurate estimate of the rate of adverse drug events, um, right. things that go wrong in patient care that are the result of human error and um, and and coordination errors and so forth that that often happen in these very complex settings. Now, my small part of the larger study was to answer the question of whether better teamwork, Mm -hmm. higher quality relationships and teams, better team leadership would lead to lower error rates. Um, That was a, that was in fact a prediction Mm -hmm. that was quite well supported in the aviation context that we talked about earlier. And, and so I, used a validated team survey to measure teamwork uh, properties and trained medical investigators were sort of going team to team to, to collect data that they would make available on their error rates. And lo and behold, after six months of data collection, um, running the analyses, um, what I saw in the analyses was that higher, better teamwork had lower... Uh, had, had had higher, I'm sorry, b- better teams had higher rates of error, not lower. Right? So it was exactly the opposite. It wasn't even just a null result. It was 180 degrees wrong uh, result where there was a significant correlation between high quality teamwork and higher error rates. Now, that either, you know, made no sense. Anyway, I felt I felt head scratcher, right? Yeah, I was, I was, but I was, it was like a head scratcher with a big, you know, emotional component where I thought, (laughs) oh my God, I'm such a failure. I'm going to drop out of school. Um, And of course I didn't drop out of school. I decided instead to think a little deeply about what, why this might be happening. And it occurred to me that maybe the better teams didn't make more errors. Maybe they were reporting more errors, right? In other words, maybe they were more open and honest and willing to talk about what goes wrong. And um, ultimately, uh, I was able to show that that was a plausible interpretation with with some additional data collection. But but even more importantly, ultimately, fast way forward now, um, I began to think that that idea that different teams have different levels of openness and willingness to take interpersonal risks, like speaking up about errors, um, might have legs. And that later was called psychological safety. Um, it's measurable and it's a, a phenomenal predictor of team performance in all sorts of industry contexts.
0: And it's so interesting to think of psychological safety and failure, you know, in the same sentence.
1: Yes. Well, you know, it's. I think they belong in the same sentence because um, psychological safety describes a work environment where you can be open about failure. Now, if you take as a given that things will go wrong in you know, in work today because of the complexity, because of the novelty, because of the uncertainty, because of the drive for innovation or what have you. It is a reality that some things will go wrong. It is not a reality that everyone will necessarily speak up about it quickly. So these two ideas go hand in hand. You need what might be easiest to talk about as a learning environment to learn from failure and to experiment thoughtfully.
0: In fact, you say that learning, I'm not sure learning is better than knowing, but learning is as yeah. important as knowing.
1: Yeah. Well, in a way, it's um, we should train ourselves to be learners rather than knowers. You know, nobody likes a know-it-all, but, but <laughs> it's being right. a learn-it-all is a pretty powerful stance, right? Being someone who wakes up in the morning and says, I wonder what I'm going to learn today. Like, what assumptions am I going to upend, right? What new Ideas or possibilities. Am I am I going to learn about today, whereas our spontaneous mindset is often one of, I've got my knowledge. I'm going to go through life and keep reconfirming how 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 right it was.
0: When you talk about psychological safety, especially in the workplace, although we can probably apply it to the school, the schoolyard, the home as well. What are some of the, the important features of psychological safety that allows for people to admit mistakes and learn from their mistakes?
1: You know, one of the um, important features of, of an environment, it could be a family, it could be a work team, that allows people to admit mistakes, which is never fun, No, is such a passionate commitment to the larger goals. Whether of of the family for the children to you know grow and thrive, um, or for the team to do good work, like you're so if you're so committed to that larger purpose for being here, then you're it's much easier to take the the small risks and and you know moments of discomfort for uh, that are required to speak up honestly. So it's really it's very much about being purpose driven, being goal driven. That, uh, that that increases the chances of being willing to do the hard work of honesty.
0: Well, thinking of the workplace, you also say part of this is the ability to feel like you can disagree with your boss without having to pay either the ultimate price or having to pay right. a kind of price for it.
1: Yeah, and, and disagree on important things, right? right? I'm not saying, you know, if your boss says... Um, you know, red is a better better color than blue, who cares? Right. right? but but, but if you're saying something about, well, I think we should launch the product in this market first and you've got data to suggest otherwise, you had better share it because you're then helping prevent a preventable failure
0: and asking for help
1: and asking for help, which is never easy., uh, you know, we think it makes us look weak um, in a funny way. It can make you look strong because um, you're you know you're strong and confident enough to know when you're in over your head and might need help, and you care enough about the team to not want to impose that risk on them.
0: I'm thinking about how to create an environment like that. I mean, what does management, what do bosses have to do so that their employees feel that they can do all these things?
1: Well, they have to call attention to the nature of the work that requires that kind of risk-taking, that kind of openness. You know, So, for example, if the work is innovation, they need to say it early and often, like, we've never done anything like this before. We're going to need everybody's brains in the game. You know, We're going to need you to speak up with ideas. We're going to need you to critique loud and clear. So you're basically making a clear connection between what the work demands, if we are to be excellent at it, and what kind of climate we need to have to do that work well, um, and, and then and then secondarily, you get really good at asking good questions, hmm. like you're doing today, right? When you ask a question, I guarantee you it would feel very awkward for me to just sit here quietly and unwilling to open my mouth. <laughs> yes, right? it would. Yeah, we right? have Whereas to say goodbye to you. Question, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'd be I'd be perfectly you know fine just sitting back and not speaking <laughs> up, but if you ask me directly for my thoughts it's virtually impossible not to offer them. Now, I could not offer them honestly, but right. if you ask the question in a way that conveys genuine curiosity and, and you know, eagerness to do well on this project, um, I will meet you halfway for sure. So it's it's about setting the stage as this is the kind of work that really depends on all of our being willing to work this way. It's asking good questions. And of course, it almost goes without saying, but be thoughtful about your response. You know, when Mm -hmm. someone disagrees with you, your instinct is to be sort of frustrated or annoyed. Take a breath and say, thanks for that different perspective. Let's take a look.
0: Is that hard for a boss to do?
1: It's hard for any human to do. Sure, But we have to, you know, most of the things that are worth doing in life are hard, right? So it's, so, um, it's worthwhile hard. And you know, the, the things that are just easy or natural or spontaneous, there's rarely any real value in, you know, I mean, you don't, you know, you don't get ahead or, or launch great products or, you know, win athletic competitions by doing just the easy things.
0: Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Amy Edmondson, our guest today on The Connection. She's got a brand new book called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. That's what we're talking about. And she's also a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School. You say there's a lot we can learn from scientists. That makes sense to me when it comes to either failing wrong or perhaps even asking some of the right Hmm. questions, being curious, but also chefs, you know, chefs working (laughs) in a busy kitchen. Take us there.
1: Yes. well especially chefs who are on the sort of the leading edge of their craft um, who are trying to uh, and most chefs would fall in this category trying to develop new delightful dishes that that, that diners will love and and you can't you can't um, do that without taking some risks but you have there are usually smart risks right there's intelligent failures if it doesn't turn out you've got good reason to believe those tastes might work well together might be magic or the the chemistry of it will, you know, magically come through, but sometimes you're wrong. Now, you know, great chefs, especially in in sought after restaurants, are not doing that at game time. They're not sort of playing around with an uncertain dish um, in in the real operating conditions. They're doing it in the lab, or they're doing it um, on on uh, you know midday Monday when when they when it's safe to experiment and get it wrong. But to be at the real leading edge um, in almost any field requires a willingness to try new things that don't always work out the first time. And that's called failure.
0: And it also requires a certain level of curiosity. Like, I, w- oh, wonder, yes. I wonder what this will taste like.
1: Exactly. I mean, you, it's it's so much easier, again, easy, so much easier <laughs> to just keep doing what what's a sure winner, something that you... Um, you know, you no, know, you can do it practically in your sleep. Why not keep doing that? Why try to invent something new? Well, the answer is, of course, you know, we'd we'd all still be—I don't know what we ate in the '50s, but we'd all still be eating oh, that. I remember. If, if, <laughs> if nobody was willing to, you know, take 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 risks and and develop new cuisines.
0: Do we have to learn then to be comfortable with our own discomfort? Because when things are are new and yeah. different, you know, it's it's it can make you feel kind of scared or, or uneasy. Sure,
1: sure. I mean, you mentioned perfectionism earlier, and and we all have some degree of perfectionism. I mean, we have, a, we have a strong desire to be right. We have a strong desire to, you know, have everything we do get a round of applause, but that's just not realistic, and it's certainly not where great advances uh, come from, because then it leads you to just stay within bounds and and only do the safe stuff the easy stuff
0: there's a phrase as will you associate with silicon valley i don't know how true it is fail fast and mm. fail often i heard you just i think that was a groan there coming from yes you, amy a groan. Said, i mean i don't i don't understand i don't understand that perhaps you can explain well, your groan and and, yeah. and what is that thinking
1: well, so my groan is is um, not that it isn't true. It's just that it's only true under very particular circumstances. And the saying, say, fail fast, fail often, is at risk for being more widely applied than is appropriate. and And so where is it appropriate? Well, it's appropriate in new territory where the stakes are low enough to withstand the assault of failure, and um, and speed is of the essence because your your goal is to learn as much as you can, as fast as you can, with as little cost and harm as possible. And, and you know, so so speed matters. That's where the fast part comes in. So if you're an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and you have a an idea for a new business model that you think could take the world by storm, you know, what's the first thing you do? Well, you get some feedback from others. And if others, you know, other smart people say, yeah, that sounds good. You maybe try to get a little bit of seed money. And then you try to experiment with a, an alpha and a beta product in, in the market. Now, nine times out of 10, all of this work is going to amount to nothing because 90% of startups fail. But if it's going to amount to nothing, you'd rather it amount to nothing quickly so you can pivot and try something else than take 10 years, you know, to fail. That would not be good. That would not be an intelligent failure. So fail fast, fail often applies to thoughtful forays into new territory where you just desperately want to get the new information you need so as to succeed. Right? You want to get it with minimal cost and minimal harm. Um, so good advice. But obviously, here's where the groan comes from, that would not be good advice for the cardiac surgery operating room. Right. Right? It would not be good advice for uh, passenger air travel.
0: Well, and I... Th- th- I wonder whether uh, fail fast, fail often gets interpreted as, let's just throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and, yes. see, and see what sticks.
1: Yes. In fact, that's a really thoughtful point because it's it doesn't, you know, I take it as a given, but it doesn't directly state, please do your homework. Right. It, it It says, yeah, fail fast, fail often as if just, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks rather than have a thoughtful hypothesis and please test it quickly. Don't let, you know, don't let grass grow onto your feet. Just get out there and get to work testing it.
0: I wonder, thinking about the pandemic, I mean, obviously the mm. the the heartbreak and, and crisis of the pandemic, which of course mm. began a couple of years ago, even as we speak, um, obviously many people died. Uh, our Our health system was to the breaking point. Mm but we did get these these um vaccines out of the pandemic how do you see that as kind of the right kind of wrong the science well, of failing well
1: the vaccine development journey was full of the right kind of wrong like right? full of smart failures along the way to just groundbreaking successes yeah um it it is certainly not the case that Having committed to the development of a vaccine, somebody went into a lab and came out the next day with a beautiful vaccine. Right? It was um, many scientific experiments, some of which didn't work out. Many trials, some of which didn't work out. But enough activity and enough speed um, that remarkable progress was made through these small, intelligent failures along along the way.
0: And have we? Lo- I mean, do you think <laughs> what we learned from the pandemic? has that stayed with us or or are we almost forgetting that that this yeah, this terrible thing happened around the world yeah go right? ahead because
1: part of i mean the pandemic was you know, not only in the development of a vaccine but for so many people in you know the the discovery that we could turn on a dime and do such yeah. things as teach your class remotely through zoom or um uh, you know um manage um meetings of all kinds um without ever leaving your home that was a real sort of discovery through trial and failure, but it happened fast. So we proved to ourselves in so many ways during the pandemic that we were capable of being far more problem solving oriented and far more innovative than we tend to give ourselves credit for. And I do think you're right that we have sort of fallen back a little. We've gotten back into a kind of. Um, Almost fatalism around mm-hmm. oh, the problems are too big and we can't solve them because there isn't that urgency that we got to solve it by tomorrow and so we can we can kind of sit back and 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 say woe is me again.
0: We're almost up in a break here, but just to underscore what you're saying when you talk about either smart failure or intelligent failure, it's really dealing with something that is new. That we haven't had yes. to uh, haven't had to deal with before. Can you speak to that just really briefly?
1: Yes. So it's it, it's um, a an important criterion is of an intelligent failure is that it takes place in new territory, right. and 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 that is the reason why that matters is because you can't if you can just look up the answer, look up the formula on the internet, say, and get the result you want. Please do that. Right? There's no point in wasting time reinventing the wheel if the wheel already exists. So an intelligent failure is happening in that new territory where you have no other choice. There isn't an answer yet. So you must experiment with the best hypothesis you've got to see whether it works. And sometimes it will, and sometimes it won't.
0: Another short break today on The Connection, talking with Amy Edmondson about Failure. Failing well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia, and we're talking about embracing failure. Our guest is Amy Edmondson, author of Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. And again, she's professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School. Amy, you were talking about earlier on in the show about different kinds of failure, one sort of simple, basic failure, and the other one, a more complex failure. You say in this book that complex failures are on the rise. I think I know the answer to that, but tell us why. Tell us why.
1: (laughs) Well, the most important reason is that the Interdependence and complexity of our systems, you know, supply chain systems, organizational systems, IT systems, is just that much greater. So that there's more potential for interacting factors to to come together in a way you didn't anticipate and create a failure. And think of how many um, security breach failures we we hear about in the news, and yeah. meaning. Um, Credit card companies and and the like. Right? Those those are those are complex failures. They're never intended. They're they're not in new territory. They're never good, but they are increasingly difficult to prevent um, because of the complexity of the systems and the interdependence of the systems.
0: And sort of getting to the that that the idea of getting to the root cause of this problem or this failure is so complicated, or sort of. Where, where you started in the beginning is not where you end up at the end?
1: That's true. I mean, it's it's multi-causal. Right? There isn't one cause usually. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might be some cases. In some cases, we have sabotage and there's one bad actor. But that bad actor's ability to break through with a cyber threat is um, based on some weaknesses in the systems that were underappreciated. So we just have to learn to live with this stuff or, I mean, is there a way to address complex failures? No, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, the way to, I mean, the, the, I think the silver lining of complex failures is that because they're multi-causal, it means they also present multiple opportunities for, for catching and and preventing. Um, So, you know, if, if we, you know, if we wait until there's um, a breakdown to then say, okay, you know, what happened, and let's not let ha- have that happen again. Um, that's not best practice. If we're constantly sort of on alert saying, okay, we know things are going to go wrong. We just don't know exactly where. So let's, you know, let's have a uh, a red team kind of looking around actively for where the vulnerabilities are so we can get out ahead of the vulnerabilities.
0: Give us an example of a complex failure. You have a bunch of them in your book, including things like building collapses.
1: Yes I mean one one could one doesn't have to go back farther than the uh 2021 Champlain Towers collapse yeah. um to say that was a that was a complex failure a tragic complex failure one of the deadliest engineering failures um uh in in uh, recent history um and 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 that was a sort of, you know a combination of like we could we could go on and on but yeah. rising sea levels um uh, a building Building code that that um, required um, deep reinspection every 40 years. This was the 39th year, um, so you know maybe you should have getting out a little bit ahead of it more often than that. A kind of very tiny uh, slope in the pool that the, the pool deck that led water to accumulate in a way that wasn't intended to. Um, some tiny fissures that were noticed but not thought by even by experts to be any big deal, inadequate funds in the building association to get out ahead of some of these preventative repairs, and on it goes. Any one of those factors, other than sea level rises, um, is a factor that you could get out ahead of. Um, You could pay more attention and be more thoughtful in assessing and envisioning the potential risks before they come back to haunt you.
0: I want to pick up on something you said earlier about um, sort of feeling as if um, there's nothing we can do about things. Mm. In a sense, throwing up our hands. Because it Mm. does feel like we're, you know, there are a lot of failures in the world. It depends how much, I guess, attention you want to give them. But the idea is that this is all inevitable and we just have to learn to live with it. And
1: no one
0: knows knows what they're doing and on and on and on. How do we address
1: that? Well, I think that's a kind of fatalism that is not... um, Not human beings at our best, Um, you know. At our at our best, we take on hard things and Mm -hmm. we do our very best to do to do them well. Um, And and so when we the the um, the problem with that fatalism, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, right? If we throw our hands up and say there's nothing we can do, we will be right. There's nothing we can do. Right. But if if we say again, okay, you know, the complexities of some of these systems give rise to uh, some real threats. Um, we can create um, some, you know, expert groups to really identify what those threats are, get out ahead of them, uh, and 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 do the hard work to um, counteract counteract and combat those threats.
0: We also live in what feels like an. I mean, we've always lived in an ever changing world, but it does right. feel as if it's changing at the speed of light, and it's hard to con- hold on to things that feel familiar or that change comes so fast, you don't even know how to respond to it.
1: No, it's, it's absolutely true. And these are hard problems. And they're happen, they happen in every domain you know, yeah. from, from, from the um, government to business to families. Uh, but um, I think that's why we're here. Uh, we're here to solve problems and to team up and solve bigger problems. So we can't give up now.
0: We meaning us human beings. That's why yes, we're here. we meaning a, us human beings. Not just yeah. you and not me. Just, not just you and me. <laughs> to solve all the world's problems. Um, right. But but it is, you know, I think it, it can, you know, if I can speak for all human beings, then, you know, it just sometimes feels like things are coming
1: so fast and yeah. so furious.
0: It's sometimes hard to sort of know. Sort of, yeah. What is the important thing that we have to deal with at this moment?
1: Well, that's true. I mean, it can be hard to prioritize. But one thing to keep in mind is just there's the fundamental error that, Things are supposed to be perfect, or that all is supposed to go well. And when it doesn't, it's a big surprise and yeah. a big shock. Um, and I, I think that we can. And this is what the last chapter of the book addresses: when we learn to accept the reality that we are fallible human beings, and have that not depress us, but rather enliven us. Working in fallible systems, you know, when we take that as the given, rather than take inadvertently take as the given that all is supposed to work well, Mm -hmm. then we are empowered to do some of the problem solving that we were put here to do. It's like, oh, okay, I'm fallible, my systems are fallible. Let's get to it.
0: Well, we're going to have to, right?
1: Right. And we're in it together, right? It doesn't have to be lonely anymore. Our fallibility is not a source of shame, but rather a source of connection to each other.
0: You also have some kind of practical advice, which I always appreciate, about overcoming fear of failure. One is to hold oneself accountable. I just want to walk through this and give you a chance to to respond to each one. Hold ourselves accountable.
1: Yeah, and that doesn't mean wear the hair shirt or, you know, beat yourself up. That just means be strong enough and thoughtful enough to acknowledge your part in it right here are here are some things i did or didn't do that contributed to this undesired outcome it's a very powerful stance actually and
0: saying i'm sorry <laughs> we've done we've done not an sh- easy one <laughs> no we've right? done whole I shows mean, on that saying sorry
1: yes and and there's some you know there's so much beautiful research on it and it boils down to um it's really worth doing because apologies repair the relationship and the relationship is, is so valuable and, um, it's gotta be sincere and it's, it, it's gotta, you've gotta own your part. Um, and you've gotta, you know, if, when, when appropriate, make amends if you can.
0: You also talk about overcoming confirmation bias. That's the the bias I think we all have to sort of seek out things that we or people that we believe, mm that are like us rather than sort of challenging our our own belief
1: system that's right and i think that comes back to curiosity and just cultivating curiosity right i i can be more gung ho about um, avoiding or overcoming my confirmation biases when i when i when i uh, lean into my curiosity uh, part and and just I want to, for my own benefit, I want to know more. I want to know what you're seeing. I want to know what I'm missing, because that will ultimately help me.
0: I wonder, too, I don't know if it's more true in a capitalist country like ours, where we put successful people on a pedestal, and we don't Mm. see all the people that got them there. Can you speak to that?
1: That's a great point. Um, There's very little success in the modern world that wasn't a team effort, um, that, that didn't involve lots of important relationships important collaborations um and and ideas and support and 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 help of all kinds um that led to that success so I, I do we do have a kind of myth of the individual who triumphs and and achieves the success kind of on their own and in my experience it just doesn't work that way it's it I, it's it's um you know that behind any successful person is a whole bunch of other people who've helped um, in get them there,
0: I wonder too if we could talk a bit about children and failure um, and applying even some of the lessons of psychological safety to to young people growing up in this very you know perfectionistic we were talking about that, but this very intense and pressured society to give them permission to to make mistakes and to fail and to try yeah. things
1: that feel scary. Well, you know, of course, we're all, they're they children, at least little children, are, are comfortable making mistakes because yes. they haven't learned yet that you're not supposed to make mistakes. Yes, um, and and we're not talking about mistakes on purpose. You can experiment on purpose. You can't make a mistake on purpose. That's a you know, a mistake is an un um, uh, uh, unintended deviation uh, from from a known practice, but but children do need to be. Um, encouraged to embrace a learning mindset, a growth mindset where they where they know and they truly believe that the more they try and stretch and get things wrong on the way to getting them right, the better off they'll be. Yeah. And they can too easily learn that fixed mindset idea where they internalize the idea that they're supposed to get the right answer and that they're supposed to be perfect and they're supposed to get everything right the first time. And that leads them to be tremendously risk averse to get their to get their you know rewards from people like praising them rather than from the sheer joy of learning something new or trying something new or stretching themselves and and figuring out what happens
0: is it true we learn more from our failures than our successes is that actually true
1: it is actually true, um, you know, and it's and of course there are different kinds of failures as we've been discussing. Right. Um, and intelligent failures bring the most learning because they bring the most novelty. Uh, but we we learn a lot when we make a mistake too in known territory, and we realize, oh, I, I was trying to, you know, I was doing that in my sleep. That's not a good way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So we learn something there too. The problem with successes is success is multi-causal, and so we are at risk of learning the wrong lesson from our successes, right? Let's say I have a success. I might think the lesson is I'm just really smart and capable, or I might think the lesson is, you know, I worked really hard on that and it panned out, but the the reality is more complex than that, right? There's a number of things that contributed to that success, and we're at risk of not paying enough attention to all of them.
0: Looking at the clock here, just a couple of more minutes. uh, wondering, too, about how you see the world of work changing you're a, you're a professor of leadership mm-hmm. and management you know in the last couple of years because of the pandemic and not everyone had the chance to work remotely a lot of uh businesses workplaces are are hybrid workplaces um how do you see what we even what we've been talking about about uh creating a you know, a place where people can be psychologically safe but but distant. Is that does that work?
1: Yeah, well, you know, this is a work in progress. Right? This is um this is a giant uh, societal experiment or laboratory where I, I think in, in a couple of years we'll have more solid data on on what works, on what what, what are I'm collecting data right now, but it's really not um done or analyzed mm. but on what is the relationship between psychological safety and and number of days in the office for oh, example wow. um, and uh, but I, I think there's many many factors i think we are at great risk of underestimating the complexity of these phenomena right? so that if you know you have a, a giant experiment that we had to have during the, the pandemic and we found that many things sort of seemed to go okay uh, but it wasn't very systematic in terms of really learning what works and what doesn't work. And that's the work that lies ahead, I believe.
0: Talking about, I guess, I mean, this show is called Connection, The Connection, but, <laughs> but talking about connection in the workplace and just the the fallout when we are separated from each other.
1: Yeah. Well, are these connections, I mean, relationships are so important and so meaningful and there's no question that they are nurtured, at least the good ones, by being together. We need some time together. We are a social species and we have, fortunately, we have these uh, video uh, conferencing tools, but right. uh, we should not mistake them for the same phenomenon as as being together in person. So the questions become how much, uh, in real lifetime do we need together how much um remote which tasks work well for remote, which tasks don't work well for remote. Many, many complex questions that, that still need to be answered thoroughly.
0: Are you we're almost out of time here? Are you surprised, Amy Evanson, when you began your career that you'd be an expert in failure?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was always motivated by learning, by, by by, you know, understanding how organizations and people learn in a world that keeps changing. And it turns out that the failure just continues to play a large role in answering those questions. And does that surprise you? Not really. Not really. I think I was thinking about these issues well before I even became an academic.
0: Well, we have to leave it there. And my thanks, Amy Edmondson, for joining us today on The Connection. We uh, we covered a lot of territory. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And again, she is professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School. And we've been talking about her new book, A Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Well, thank you for joining us today on The Connection as well. Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human and unique. You can email us at The Connection. Tell us what you want us to cover. That address is the Connection at whyy.org. Check out our website, whyy.org slash Connection and sign up for our newsletter. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram and find us on Facebook. Charlie Kyer, the engineer for today's edition of the show. It's uh, produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. I'm Marty Moskow-Aim. Thank you so much for joining us.